thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, the most important truth that we hold to as Christians, the truth that is the foundation of all that we believe is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And another very important truth that we hold to as Christians is the fact that we as believers in Jesus will also rise and get new glorified bodies and go to be with him in heaven. Now, the Corinthian church had some problems with the idea of people being raised from the dead, and their problem really came from their culture's view uh, on resurrection. You see, the the Greeks definitely believed in immortality of the soul, uh, but not the resurrection of the body. To them, the body was the source of man's weakness, the source of man's sin, and so they thought death was a welcome thing, that the soul was now released from this cage of, you know, humanity. And so, you know, they didn't see resurrection as a positive thing. They saw, oh, you know, we want to be released from the thing that is, you know, bounding us into sin and uh, and we want to be liberated from it. And so they did not believe that a person could be or would be uh, resurrected. That completely went against their view of the afterlife, their view of immortality. Um, and if you remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul gets to Athens uh, and it's the first time he's there in Greece and he's starts sharing the gospel, and as he always does, he finishes with the resurrection and Jesus rising from the dead. And we're told that as people listen to him, all of a sudden when he gets to the resurrection, many of them start to mock him. And the reason they start mocking him is because that was such a ludicrous view in the mind of the Greeks. Oh, someone rising from the dead. You know, you had us so far, Paul, but now you've kind of lost us. I mean, come on, really? You're going to talk about that? And so, you know, recognize that Athens is right next to Corinth and, you know, the Greek philosophy of the day would have been very prevalent uh, within the Corinthians. And so, you know, you got people in Corinth who are raised with this belief system that being raised from the dead is not something that's possible, not something that would ever happen. And now you get people with that getting saved and, and you know, coming into the church there in Corinth. And so their view of the resurrection, you know, is a bit twisted, is a bit unbiblical and it's difficult for them to believe you know what the scriptures teach and that's really one of the big issues that we see here that Paul is addressing because in chapter 12 or chapter 15 verse 12 we're told now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead So Paul's making very clear, there are those in the Corinthian church that are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. This is their problem. This is their issue. And, you know, Paul's already dealt with several issues here that the Corinthians were dealing with. And now he's going to address this problem that they have with the resurrection. And really, when you make this statement that there is no resurrection from the dead, the two things that you are denying is you are denying Jesus's resurrection and you're also denying the resurrection 
resurrection of believers. Uh, and so that statement has some huge problems attached with it. And so Paul wants to spend chapter 15 dealing with these problems that come with the statement of there is no resurrection from the dead. And Paul's going to start by dealing with the most important problem that comes, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. He wants us to be confident that it actually happened, and he wants us to see why it is so vital for our Christian faith and for the gospel that we believe. And then he's going to reveal how Jesus's resurrection is connected with ours. If he didn't rise, neither will we. And then he's going to talk about the resurrection of believers and how that is possible and why that is something important for us to understand and believe as well. And so there's a lot of great stuff that Paul's going to deal with in this chapter. This morning, we're going to focus on the resurrection of Jesus and what Paul has to say about that. Next week, we're going to focus on the resurrection of believers uh, and what Paul has to say about that. Now, since the resurrection of Jesus is really the most important and foundational truth that we have as Christians, the first half of, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, 13 is really one of the most important portions of scripture that we will study. It's a foundation that all of us need to know. It's a foundation that all of us need to be confident in. And it's a foundation that we need to be able to share with others. So let's see what we can learn here. Chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says this. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul starts off reminding them of something that was very important for them because they were kind of forgetting something essential, the first message, the gospel message. And notice he says, hey, the message of the gospel that I declare to you and then I preach to you. And I want to just pause here for a moment because this is something that I think is so important for us to recognize. The only way that the Corinthians hear the gospel is if someone comes and declares it to them. And that person was Paul. But you know, Paul also gives us a challenge in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Notice what he says. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how should they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You know, people can't hear the good news of the gospel unless someone tells them. The only way you're going to hear it is if someone communicates it. And so someone's got to be willing to do that. Someone's got to be willing to go and declare that to others. Someone's got to come and, and oftentimes need to be sent, as Paul says. You know, how are they going to go unless they are sent? You know, that's why as a church, every single month we send out a group of people to the park. Why? Because we want to get the good news of the gospel to people. That's why in a little over a month, we're sending a group of 18 people to Uganda because we want to go spread the gospel there. We want to send people with the good news because we realize they're not going to hear it unless someone's willing to go with the message. And so when Paul went to Corinth, he was faithful to declare the message of the gospel, faithful to re to preach the message of the gospel. But now we're also told that, hey, the response was good. You know, sometimes you share the gospel and people reject it. But look, notice what he says, which you also received and in which you stand. 
You know, when you hear the gospel, the most important response, the, the first response is, is receiving it. You have to accept it. You have to believe it for it to do anything for you. And so the believers in Corinth, they had done that. They had received the gospel. Paul preaches it. They receive it. But notice he tells us something else they do. They're also standing in it. And this is something I think is so important for us. It's not something that we just accept and then abandon. We just accept and then ignore. It's something that we hold on to. It's something that we stand in. What Jesus did for us on the cross, what he did for our sin, what he sacrificed for us is something that we continue to stand in throughout our Christian life. It's not just something we look back to and say, oh, that day I got saved and believed in this message and that's kind of where I left it. No, we receive it and then we stand in. And it's something that we see the Corinthian believers were doing. And that was a great thing. But yet Paul gives a challenge. Yeah, you started well in receiving it. You continued well in standing it. But notice what he says in verse 2. By which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. You start well when you receive it. It's great that you stand in it, but guess what? you got to continue to hold fast to it. It's something that you hold on to for the rest of your Christian life. And the fact that he uses this term, hold fast, it implies the reality that someone might try to take it from you. I mean, why do you have to hold fast to something unless it's going to you know, seek to be removed from you? And this is the most vital message that we have, and it's the most attacked message that there is in the Bible. And if you remember from uh, those who come on Thursdays and we went through the book of Galatians, they had the gospel snatched, or you could say they gave it away. But remember the Galatian believers, chapter one, verses six and seven, it says, Paul speaking, I marvel that you were turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. You know, when Paul preached the gospel to the Galatian believers, they received it. They stood in it, but then they abandoned it. They abandoned it for a lie that said, you know what? It's not Jesus alone and belief in him that saves me. It's Jesus plus my works that will ultimately save me. That was the lie that they fell into. That's why they needed to hold fast to the truth, but they didn't. And so Paul in Galatians gets them to go back to the truth. But here in, in Corinth, the, the lie wasn't Jesus plus uh, works. The lie was resurrection isn't true. The resurrection isn't real. So Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So an essential element of the gospel is being removed and is something that they need to be careful that they don't reject. And so Paul is now in verses three and four going to share with us the gospel. He's going to share with us the three essential elements of the gospel. And you'll notice the one that's, you know, kind of fitting within the context the most is the fact that he's making sure that we understand the resurrection is a part of that. Notice what he says. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So here Paul tells us the message of the gospel that he received from Jesus and that he delivered to the Corinthian believers. Once again, reminding them, hey, this is the message that I shared with you. And he shares with us three important things that are in the message of the gospel. First, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Second, that he was buried. And third, he rose again the third day according to 
the scriptures. So Paul lays out three important elements of the gospel that not only we need to understand, but we need to be able to communicate. For those of you going to Uganda, this is something that we've been training in because when we get there, we want to be able to communicate this truth to people who have not heard it. So the first element of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is where it all starts. Jesus' death. He died on a cross, but why? Well, Paul says he died for our sin. That was the reason he came. That was the reason that he gave his life, but not just for our sin, but also for the consequences of our sin. You see, the Bible tells us in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is very clear. Every single person on this planet is a sinner. The word sin, it means to miss the mark, speaking of missing the mark of God's perfect standard. You know, if after this service we went out into the parking lot and we had a rock-throwing contest and, you know, we all wanted to hit my house and break all the windows in my house, my house is a few miles away, and so we all pick up some rocks and, and we're seeking to do that. Now, you know, some of us are going to throw that rock farther than others. Some of us are stronger than others. But the reality is none of us are strong enough to throw a couple miles and to hit my house. And so some are going to get closer, some are not. But we're all going to miss the mark. None of us are going to make it there. And in the same regard, all of us are sinners. Some of us might get closer to the perfect standard of God than others. Some might be doing worse and more sinful. But the bottom line that the Bible reveals is none of us have attained the perfection that God has established. All of us have missed the mark and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. And the Bible reveals to us our sin has earned us something. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. A wage is something that we earn. We all like a wage because when you go to your job and you work for a week or two weeks or a month, whenever you get paid, you know, what you're getting paid is a wage. It's, It's what you earn for all of the work that you have placed into that job. Well, our sin has earned us something, but it's not something that you want. It is not something that is good. Our sin, we're told, has earned us death. And the death that is spoken here is twofold. It's it's physical death because when God created man and woman in the garden, he created them perfect. He created them to no longer die, to, to live forever. But sin was what brought physical death, but it also brought spiritual death. Spiritual death is separation from God in hell, a place of torment and punishment. Now, the reason that Jesus died for us on the cross was to pay for our sin and for the punishment that we deserve, which is this spiritual death, this hell that you and I have earned because of our sin. And Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows you his love. He shows me his love by the fact that he was willing to die for your sin. He was willing to die for my sin. You know, let's say that you were in the hospital with cancer and it was all throughout your body. Your cells were full of them. The doctor said, you only have a few more days to live. And, you know, you're kind of just thinking through that reality of, you know, the fact that you're about to die because of cancer. And if I were able to come to that hospital bed and to speak with you and to say, you know what, I can do something for you. I can give you 
Me, I'm cancer-free. All the cells within my body are cancer-free, and I can give you all of the cells that I have, and I can take all of your cells and place them into me. The thing that would happen is now you would no longer die because your cells would be healthy and and cancer-free, but since I took your cancer cells and placed them into my body, now I'm going to die because now I have that. And that's what we're thinking when we say that, you know, Christ died for us. You see, our sin is like cancer. It's the thing that ultimately brings us to death is what it's, you know, earned us. And, and Jesus says, you know what? I am taking your sin and I am placing it on me. And I am taking my sinlessness because Jesus lived a sinless life. And he says, here, I'm going to give that to you. And this amazing exchange happens where Jesus now gives us his sinlessness and he takes our sin upon himself on the cross to pay for it, but not just for our sin, but for the punishment that the sin deserves, which is hell. And so we get the sinlessness and the righteousness of Jesus and he takes our sin and the punishment that we deserve and this wonderful exchange happens. And that's what we're seeing here with the reality that Jesus showed his love to us by dying on the cross for our sins. But also notice that Paul says here, Jesus did this according to the scriptures. Now, remember here, as Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians, you know, this is now part of the New Testament, but the New Testament didn't exist yet. It hadn't been put together yet. And so when Paul speaks of according to the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. And, you know, the fact that Jesus would die, how he would die, why he would die, that was all prophesied many years before Jesus ever came and actually did it. An example of that is in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, we're told, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, speaking of Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So the Bible prophesies through Isaiah that Jesus would be beaten, that he would be killed. Why? For our transgressions, for our iniquities, for our sins. That he would take them upon himself, which is exactly what he did. So the first important element of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. The second important element of the gospel is that he was buried. Now, oftentimes, you know, when we think of this, we don't really add this to our gospel presentation. We don't think of um, Jesus being uh, buried there. And, and here are some pictures of Jesus' tomb that I took while in Israel. But, you know, this is very important that the burial of Jesus is a proof that he actually died. You know, this is a significant thing that they put him in a tomb. Why? Because he was dead. We're, we're told that friends, followers of Jesus after he died on the cross, took him and and wrapped him up and placed him in a tomb. But I can guarantee you, if there was any life in Jesus whatsoever, as they're carrying him, if he moved or or anything happened, there's no way they're just going to put him in the tomb. You know, um, friends that bury friends don't bury living friends. And so, you know, we need to recognize he was dead. And that's the, the important part of this reality of the fact that he was buried. But it's also something, once again, just like the other, the Old Testament prophesied, it would happen. Isaiah 53, 9 says this, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so here, 
The Bible prophesies in Isaiah that not only is Jesus going to be placed in a tomb, but it's going to be in a rich man's tomb, which we're told it is. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, was the tomb that Jesus used. So the first element of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. The second important element is that Jesus was buried. But the really most important element of all is that Jesus rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is an essential part of the gospel. It's really what proves everything. If Jesus just died and that was it, and he was buried and that was it, and he never rose, then guess what? He's not God. He has no capacity to forgive you of your sins. He isn't who he claimed to be. And so the first two elements of the gospel without the resurrection are meaningless. The the death and the burial are nothing unless Jesus proved who he was, which is God, by rising from the dead. Prove that he has power over death by rising from the dead. Prove that he can conquer sin by rising from the dead. And that is what he did in all of that. And so this is the most essential part of the gospel. And understand, there were people in Corinth who were denying this part. Oh, we believe in Jesus dying on the cross. Oh, we believe that he was buried, but we've started to reject it, the the fact that he rose from the dead, because we don't believe that people can rise from the dead. And that is something that completely undermines the gospel. But notice that Paul gets specific, not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but he rose from the dead the third day. Because it was specific. Not only did Jesus say when he would rise from the dead, but the Old Testament spoke of it as well. Jesus says many times through the gospels um, this, but one of the examples is Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised the third day. Psalm 16.10 speaks of the resurrection. You will not leave my soul in shale, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Another time when Jesus speaks about being in the grave for three days, he says, just like the prophet Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights as well. Something also very interesting, when you look at the feasts, and you kind of wonder if you go through the Old Testament and look at the sacrificial system and the feasts, and you kind of think, there's just all these different details. What's the point of this? Well, it all was pointing to Jesus. One we look at is the Passover, and we think, okay, yeah, that clearly points to Jesus, the lamb that was slain. We can see that. But guess what? Two days later is the Feast of First Fruits. And we're going to see here even in Corinthians that he calls Jesus the first fruits of resurrection. You see, even within that, they had this established day of the uh, Passover. And then three days you have the first fruits is when Jesus rose from the dead. But there's throughout the Old Testament pointing to this reality of the resurrection and not even that, but also when it would actually happen three days later. But another thing that's important to realize about the resurrection, in in, uh, Romans chapter 10, Paul speaks about what is it that saves you? What is it you have to believe? And notice what he says, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice here, this is something essential. Paul says, an essential part of being saved is a belief in the resurrection. You can't just believe in the cross. You can't just believe that Jesus died. You can't just believe that he was buried. You also have to believe that he rose from the dead in order to be saved. So belief in the resurrection isn't just something we add on to the gospel as some nice little additive. It is the foundation of the gospel, and without it, there is no gospel. Uh, And so that's something that Paul wants the Corinthians and us to understand. 
See, some people will just say, you know what? There's no resurrection from the dead. And a lot of the Corinthians bought into that. And so Paul starts reminding them of the truth. The gospel I shared to you had these three elements. Jesus died on the cross, according to the scriptures, for your sins. He was buried and he rose from the dead the third day for uh, according to the scriptures. But now he's going to give them some evidence. You know, you guys are kind of, you know, pushing this aside, not believing in it. Well, let me give you some evidence to remind you of the proof that Jesus truly did rise from the dead. Notice what he says in verses 5 through 8. And that he was seen by Peter, then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So Paul here gives the greatest evidence that we have to back up the reality of the resurrection, that Jesus truly did rise from the dead. He gives us a list of people that saw Jesus risen after he was crucified, after he was buried, after he was dead. People saw him alive. And the list is, you know, Peter, the disciples. But notice the biggest one. 500 people at one time saw the risen Jesus Christ. And he says, 500 people, the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So what Paul is saying is most of these 500 people are still alive now, as you read this letter. Some have fallen asleep, which is the way that we speak of Christians' death. So some are dead, but the majority of these 500 people, you can go talk to them. You go ask them. They're, they're still alive, and they saw the risen Jesus. Now, the fact that most of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection were still alive when Paul wrote this letter, it's a huge evidence to the truth that the resurrection actually happened. Because when you're studying an event in history, it's important to know how many people were there that were eyewitnesses of the event. Because the more eyewitnesses you have, the more substantial that is, the more substantial it could be that you actually believe that that thing actually occurred. So having over 500 witnesses to the risen Jesus is something that is a huge evidence for the resurrection. Dr. Edwin Yamachi, one of the leading professors of history, says this, What gives a special authority to the list of witnesses as historical evidence is the reference to most of the 500 brethren being still alive. St. Paul says, in effect, If you do not believe me, you can ask them. Such a statement in an admittedly genuine letter within uh, 30 years of the event is almost as strong an evidence as one could hope to get for something that happened nearly 2,000 years ago. You know, in a court of law, one of the strongest pieces of evidence there is, is eyewitness testimony. So the more eyewitnesses you have, the stronger your case will be. Now, if the resurrection of Jesus was put on trial and you were to have each one of these eyewitnesses be cross-examined, come before some lawyer, do you imagine that if each person only spoke for six minutes, including the cross-examination, you would have over 50 hours of eyewitness testimony. Imagine being a jury there and you're sitting for 50 hours listening to person after person after person after person saying, yes, I saw Jesus alive after he was dead. Yes, I saw Jesus here alive after he was dead. You know, it'd be the most lopsided trial in history. There's no way that the jury would say, oh, he wasn't, not with all these people who saw him alive 
after he was dead. So this is a great evidence that Paul reveals here. And then notice as he goes through this list, he starts with Peter, and then he ends with himself, and he says, then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of Due time, and Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, and he, you know, speaks of this out of due time, which leads him now to reflect upon his own apostleship. You know, he, he thinks of the apostles and and their time with Jesus, and then kind of himself. And I want you to note how he sees his own apostleship. Notice what he says about himself in verse nine: "For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." You know, Paul reveals his humble view of his apostleship. He doesn't say, oh, I'm the greatest apostle. He says, I'm the least. And then he goes on to say, you know what? I don't even feel worthy to be an apostle at all. Not only am I the least of them, I don't feel worthy. And the reason why is because of the fact that I persecuted the church. Remember Paul? He murdered Christians. He imprisoned Christians. He tried to destroy Christianity before he became a very greatly used Christian by God. But he looked at his past and he looked at his sin and he said, I am not worthy to have this calling. I am not worthy for God to use me in this way. And I think this is something so important for us because each one of us has been called by God. Each one of us has been used by God and will continue to be used by God. But we need to look at ourselves and what God has called us with and to in humility. And to say, as Paul said, I'm not worthy. And I think sometimes in our Christian life, we kind of feel like, well, yeah, I can see why God called me. You know, I can see why God's using me because look at how great I am and look at you know, how important I am. And we have this view of ourselves that isn't true. And the view that Paul had was an accurate view of, I am not worthy for God to call me. I am not worthy for God to use me. You know, I think it's interesting as Paul gets older and as he matures in the Lord, his view of himself gets more and more humble. And you might think the opposite would be true because as, as, as he walks into the Lord, he accomplishes more and more things. He goes on all these missionary journeys. He plants all these churches. He sees all these people get saved. And you could think, man, Paul's going to go from least of the apostles to the most significant apostle, to the greatest apostle, because look at all he has accomplished. Look at how he could easily see himself as better and better and better because of the things that he was able to do. But notice this progression. In 55 AD, Paul writes this statement, I am the least of the apostles. Six years later, in 61 AD, he writes the book of Ephesians. And notice what he says in Ephesians 3.8, I am the least of all the saints. And then five years after that, towards the end of his life, in 66 AD, he writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the chief of sinners. Paul starts off with saying, I'm the least of the apostles. And you know what? That's still pretty good because apostles were seen like, here's the apostles and here's the rest of the believers. So he's still kind of like, you know, there's only 11 guys better kind of mindset. But then he moves to, I am the least of the saints. So now I'm the, the worst of all the saints, but there's still all the sinful unbelievers that are worse than me. And he gets to the end of his life and he says, I am the chief of sinners. I think the more we grow in the Lord, the more we become humble in our view of ourselves, the more we see ourselves for what we truly are, and the more we see God for what he truly is, and the more we see how huge the gap is from what we are to what he is and how gracious he has been and merciful he has been to do anything in our life. 
So Paul saw his apostleship with humility, but that humility brought him to another thing that he understood, which is also something very important for us to understand as well. Notice what he says in verse 10 and 11. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Paul understood something about his calling that everyone else needs to understand about their calling. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul gave the grace of God all the credit for the change in his life. He knew what he was. I was a murderer of Christians. I was hateful towards Jesus. And the reason now that I love him and serve him is not because of anything in me. It's all because of the grace of God that I am what I am. He gave to me something that I did not deserve, something that I did not earn, something that I could never earn. His grace is the reason for it all. The only reason you and I are what we are is because of the grace of God. The only reason that there is a change in your life is because of the grace of God. The only reason that any of us are saved today is because of the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You and I are saved by grace through faith, not of our works, not of ourselves. Salvation has nothing to do with you and your works and everything to do with what God has done and us placing our trust in that, our faith in that. And through God's grace, he gives us what you and I don't deserve. Paul goes on to say, and his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was within me. You know, Paul understood it was Grace, not works. But that didn't make him conclude, there's nothing I should do. And sometimes I think we jump to that conclusion as believers. It's all about God's grace. So I don't need to labor. I don't need to work. I don't need to do anything for God. It's all his grace and nothing about me. Paul didn't see it that way. He saw the right balance of, yes, it's all the grace of God. But because he's been so gracious to me, I want to do all I can to live for him. I want to do all I can to reach people for him. It didn't stop him from laboring for the Lord more than all of the other apostles. But you know, Paul's not being prideful in this because he ends with saying, you know what, even all that I've been able to accomplish, all that I've been able to do, which if you look at it was more than the other apostles did, but yet he realizes it's not Paul that enabled him. It's not Paul's great ability that made it possible. It was the grace of God once again. The grace of God that saved him, the grace of God that called him, and the grace of God that enabled him to labor for the Lord, to work for the Lord. And we need to recognize that as well. Our salvation, our calling, and even what we do for God is all about his grace. It's not you and look how great you are and in your efforts and in all that you have that you can do these wonderful things. It's only because God is gracious to give to you what you do not deserve that you are able to use it. As we just got done with 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians and spiritual gifts and the gifts that God has given you, it's not because you deserve it. It's not because you earned it. He's given it to you. Free, here, I'm gracious, have it, use it for me. 
You know, a name that we often associate with grace is John Newton. And the reason we associate it with grace, if maybe you didn't know, he is the man who wrote the hymn that is so famous now, Amazing Grace. At the end of his life, he had breakfast once a week with a friend and their custom was to read the Bible after their meal, but he was going blind. And so uh, his friend would read the passage of scripture and then he would expound upon it and share some thoughts on it. And one day they come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and his friend reads the words, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he looks to Newton to share his thoughts and John Newton is quiet for several minutes. And this is recorded for what he said. I am not what I ought to be, how imperfect and deficient I am. I am not what I wish to be, although I abhor that which is evil and would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be, but soon I shall put off mortality and with it all sin. Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor yet what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge that by the grace of God, I am what I am. John Newton's life is an amazing story. I encourage you to read it. He was a pretty horrible, sinful man, part of the slave trade, and God grabs hold of his life. And he writes this amazing song, literally, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And I'm sure you know the lyrics to the rest of the song. And it's a powerful, powerful song that just reflects a man who recognized how gracious God has been in his life. At 82, right before he died, John Newton said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. John Newton's tombstone reads this. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. What a great thing to have on your tombstone and a recognition of a man who understood where he was and the grace of God and how God changed his life and used him. All of us are in need of God's grace. All that we do, all that we are is only because of it. Well, now Paul, as he's laid this groundwork for the gospel and the importance of the resurrection within it, he's going to now share some of the huge problems with rejecting it. Notice what he says in verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is uh, not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. 
So Paul starts off revealing some very important things to us. These believers who are saying, hey, you know what? There's no resurrection from the dead. Paul says, if you claim that, as we looked at at the beginning, you're denying the resurrection of Jesus, you're denying the resurrection of believers, and if you want to make that claim, you got some huge problems that now come to your belief in Christianity. And so he lays out for us six huge problems if Christ is not risen. So for those of you who are claiming that and believing that, Paul says, I want you to grasp the ramifications of that type of thinking. And as we go through these six problems, I want you to really think about the impact it has on whether it's important or not to believe in the resurrection. Because there are many people, even Christians, who will say, oh, well, yeah, what's the big deal? I mean, if you believe in it or not, you know, it's no big thing. If some people don't think that's not possible, who cares? You know, this kind of like nonchalance, you know, it doesn't really matter if you hold to the fact that Jesus truly did rise from the dead. Well, it is a huge deal. It's the foundation of all we believe. And as you look at these six problems, I think you will see how big of a problem it is when you reject that. The first problem If Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty. If Christ is not risen, everything that Paul, everything the apostles, everything that was being preached is empty. It's worthless. It's in vain. They're just wasting their time because they're preaching something that isn't true. It undermines everything in Scripture. So there's no point. If Christ is not risen, then my preaching has been empty. It's been worthless. You listening to it is worthless for you if Christ didn't rise from the dead. The second problem, if Christ is not risen, our faith is empty. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then your faith, your your trust in him is empty. As we noted, the only way that he can truly be God is if he rose from the dead. The only way that he can guarantee that you will rise from the dead is if he had the power to rise from the dead. The only way that you can be confident your sins can be forgiven is if he had the power to rise from the dead and conquer sin and conquer death. If he didn't rise, your faith in him is empty. Your faith in him has nothing to stand upon. It's something that, you know, is just worthless. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we got big problems. The third problem if Christ did not rise from the dead is we are false witnesses of God. You know, as Christians, the main message we teach is the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is the resurrection. If God didn't rise Jesus from the dead, and we're going around claiming that God did something he didn't do, we are false witnesses of God. Now, especially to a Jewish hearing, like Paul, this is a huge thing. Because you know in the Old Testament, you're a false witness of God. You're dead. And so this is a huge thing to say, if we're going out claiming God did something that he didn't do, how horrible is that? You're saying we're just a bunch of liars if Christ didn't rise from the dead. The fourth problem, if Christ did not rise from the dead, is that we are still in our sins. You know, this is really the biggest problem we have. If Christ isn't risen, then you are still in your sins. I am still in my sins. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then death has power over him. Then death has defeated him. Then he is not God. Then he does not have the ability to save you or me from our sins. And so we are still seen by God in our sins. And the punishment of our sin is still upon us. And we are all going to hell. This is a big problem. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're all sinful people who cannot be forgiven, and the ultimate destination for each one of us is hell. The fifth problem we have if Christ is not risen is that those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. 
You know, one of the things we love about the, what the scriptures tell us is when people believe in Jesus, our loved ones, when they pass away, we have confidence that because Jesus rose from the dead and is now in heaven, and we'll look at next week why we can have confidence that will happen for us, that our loved ones are now with him. To be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present with the Lord. But we have this hope that they're now in heaven, that they've been risen with the Lord. But guess what? If Jesus didn't rise, there's no hope of that. All those people who believed in him before are dead and they're going to be going to hell. That's what Paul is revealing here is there is nothing of hope for them or for us. We have no hope that when we die, we have a destination in heaven if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Sixth of all, if we are not, um, if Christ is not risen, we are of all people most pitiable. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything we believe is a lie. Everything we believe crumbles. It's the foundation of all. And so Paul says, we're the most pitiable. That we've lived our whole lives with this belief that is completely untrue. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything in Christianity crumbles. It's the foundation that everything is built upon. You remove that, it's all over. Jesus isn't who he claimed to be. All that we believe falls apart. So Paul gives six powerful arguments for why the resurrection is so essential to the Christian faith. He, he wants anyone who would come to you know, Christianity and say, you know what, there's no resurrection from the dead, or that's not really that important. You don't really have to hold to that. He says, well, look at these six things. You abandon the resurrection, you abandon Christianity, you abandon everything. It all falls apart. Now, the good news for us is Jesus did rise from the dead. And so all these things, these six things that Paul says are a problem if he didn't, are now a blessing because he did. And I want to look at it in the other way. Since Jesus did rise from the dead, our preaching is true. Our faith is true. We are true witnesses of God. We are no longer in our sins. Those who have died in Christ are going to go to heaven, and we have the hope that we too will go to heaven. And those we are, of all people, the most enviable for what we have in Christ. The resurrection is the most important truth to Christianity. It's the foundation to all that we believe, and it's one of the three essential elements of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, according to the scripture. He was then buried, which proved that he actually died, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. And the Bible tells us if we place our trust in who Jesus is, that he is God, we place our trust in what Jesus has done for us, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. If we will ask him to forgive us of our sins and trust in who he is and what he's done, the Bible says that he will forgive us, that we can have a relationship with him, and that we can be confident that we will no longer have to face what our sin has earned us, which is hell. We can now have an eternity with him in heaven. Let's pray.